0: I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters.
1: So today we're talking with Mark Lobosky and Joe Bellissimo. They are the current president and the immediate past president of Tristan Associates, which is a radiology group in Pennsylvania.
0: And they came to speak to us primarily about um, the ways to reconcile some of the business aspects with some of the clinical aspects of medicine and, and some of the things that they've learned from being leaders in this group about how to mitigate uh, the uh, moral injury that they see happening in clinicians.
1: Yeah, this, this episode was in response to the question that we get a lot of the time, which is, who's doing it well? Who's doing this well and taking good care of their clinicians. And really this, this group has a track record for the past 40 years of not only taking excellent care of their patients, but also of their clinicians.
0: Right. It's the alignment of the patient and the clinician um, that really gives sustainability to the kind of practice that these two have been managing.
1: Yeah. So let's have a listen. Joe Bellissimo and Mark LeBusky, thank you for joining us on Moral Matters.
2: We're happy to be here.
1: So we asked you to come and, and speak to us because uh, people keep asking us over and over again, who's doing it right? That is probably our number one question. When, when we talk to folks about clinician distress, they say, okay, tell us who's doing it right. And your practice is one of the ones that, that comes up in our minds. Um, Because you have had a long history of taking good care, not only of your patients, but also of your clinicians. And so we thought it would be great to invite you here and have that conversation about how you think about the practice and how you um, have organized or structured the practice so that you take both good care of your clinicians and your patients.
2: Okay, well, we'll help where we can.
0: So, can can you start by just giving us a little bit of a background for for people who are unfamiliar with with uh, Tristan? Tell us about the group, where it started, and and some background.
2: Tristan Associates started back in the in the sixties by Ted Tristan, and Ted was an interesting character. He was uh, a uh, military radiology technician and, uh, uh, he went into, uh, medicine after, um, uh, World War II and, um, uh, became a radiologist studying at the University of Pennsylvania and, uh, um, recruited many of his uh, classmates from Penn and opened a practice in the sixties in the Harrisburg area. It was primarily a hospital-based practice. And, uh, then over the course of, uh, the years he uh, established an outpatient um, uh, imaging center, which was one of the first in Pennsylvania, and uh, um, and they were recognized for many years as a as a leader in uh, diagnostic radiology, um, based in Polyclinic Medical Center in Harrisburg, and then uh, um, and that little outpatient center. So, um, segue, uh, over the years to 1990, I got into the practice, uh, out of residency ha- at, uh, Penn State Hershey, having done a couple of years in internal medicine and a uh, number of years in the Indian health service working, uh, primarily as a, uh, uh, family practice ER kind of doc out in Wyoming. And, uh, um, I, uh, I respected the Tristan radiologists, uh, very much. They were inspirational, a dignified group, uh, super dedicated and very professional. And, uh, and we tried to emulate that over the years. So, um, and recruit good people, basically, um, and try to keep that practice model going, but also uh, uh, the, the group philosophy, um, patient care philosophy.
1: And, and what was that patient philosophy? I mean, I think that really is the core of what made Tristan so special?
2: Well, um, you know, having done clinical medicine before, and, and Mark did too um, in the Navy, um, uh, radiology practice is quite a bit different. It, it's a it's a service oriented field, and you have um, you have to serve. Uh, first and foremost the patient but a close uh second if not the equal is the uh is the clinician so um you really really have to provide a, a good quality service to both and uh um and i think you know keeping your eye on that uh, target is is the best i think everyone wants to believe that they offer um top quality health care but um in a service industry, being uh, timely being very very good at what you do as a professional um being a good communicator to the patient and the uh and the clinician uh, closing that loop and sort of expediting understanding and expediting the uh the needs of the clinician um, make it uh, a bit more complex and uh I think uh, basically it was that that dedication to to quality that, um, um, that I think, uh, was the foundation.
3: I, I agree with Joe. I, I think I would say, um, from my perspective, maybe as to summarize what Joe was just saying is we actually actively went to the referring doctors and asked them what they wanted, um, so that we were providing the service that was desirable by the referring providers. If they wanted a particular report style, we, pro- we gave it to them. If they wanted uh, you know, to call and get their patients in the same day, we made it happen. Whatever their ask was, if we could make it happen, we did. And we did the same thing for the patients. Um, I think those were the two keys for us in serving those populations. And, and as you know, there's lots and lots of different ways to get to a goal. Um, what we would look at was we would view the prize at the top of the mountain as providing top-notch service to both the patient and the providers and recognizing that there may be 10 different ways to get there. If there was a way to get there that made it more efficient for the radiologists and um, a little bit easier on our workflow day-to-day, we would take that option. Um, It was an unintentional way to prevent burnout uh, because back when this practice started, burnout wasn't even a topic. Um, It really just was the reality of if you can control it and still provide the best service possible, why would you not control it in a way that makes it easier on you? Even
2: though quality was our
3: our
2: primary concern as far as service goes, um, uh, the way we did it was actually – very difficult on the, on the, our own physicians and on our own staff because it was a lot of hands-on. We, um, like Mark said, we would, we would tailor our reports to the obstetricians and not all obstetricians wanted the same reports. So this group would want it one way and this group would want another. Uh, you know, we gave immediate, um, Feedback to the patient on their mammograms and uh, immediate feedback to all pediatric patients and their clinicians, and, um, so on and so forth. So, yeah, that that was very hard on our staff, but uh, that but you know we they had to buy into that philosophy and and that uh, permeated our our practice.
1: So I think one of the challenges in that is is exactly is exactly what you just mentioned that a model like that where you're tailoring to e- each individual referring practice um, can be really hard on your own staff. And, and yet your own staff seems to have really weathered the storm in terms of burnout, moral injury, um, clinician abrasion pretty well. And I'm wondering what it was about your practice that, that allowed you to take care of your own radiologists as well as you did.
2: I think you're right, Mark. Don't you agree that our our um, our, cl- our support staff, our technologists, uh, the front desk people, the uh, reading people, the physicians were largely a happy group. And uh, um, I think there are some reasons for that.
3: Um, oh, very much so.
2: I mean, number one, I think it starts with recruiting the right people. Um, we've all been experience people that are, are the negative folks. Um, you know, I think um, Mark's in the midst of recruiting right now and sort of um, maybe in a, in a larger way reproducing what we had, but um, uh, I think it starts with recruiting the individuals, whether it's an administrator, a technologist, um, a reading room helper, um, a radiologist. Uh, we tried to recruit really quality individual good citizens who also happen to be very good professionals um because if you don't have those people kind of people um uh with that um sort of moral character uh a strong character then they uh then they may not be able to uh buy into that philosophy um you know, from our from day-to-day practice, we also uh, try, like Mark said, we try to do things, use technology, but also um, uh, have people doing what they were trained to do. So if you have a, a technologist who's getting a patient ready uh, at the beginning of the day, you know, for their procedure and then having to jump in and be a technologist and then having to interface with the doctor and then having to call the report um that's pretty inefficient. So we had uh, um, we had uh, you know people we called walkers that would help get the patient ready and um, and hold the baby and get coffee and then get that patient all prepped for the technologist to do what they do and then the technologist would do do uh, what they do best um, in providing a, a top quality study and then um, interfacing with the doctor to you know. Uh, take care of any technical issues and make sure that it was a sound study. And uh, and then we would have people other than the doctors calling most of the reports to the clinicians and giving feedback to the patients. So everyone was doing what they were trained to do. And it takes a lot of stress from the clinician.
1: Yeah. So, so it also sounds like what you did was to recruit people primarily to match the culture and you recruited for a servant mindset.
3: Correct. That, that was actually what I was going to summarize. Was we we were always extremely open with the practice uh, culture and expectations when we were recruiting people, and it, it becomes very obvious when you're when you're uh, interfacing with uh, candidates, which people are going to be a good fit into that service model, and which ones may or may not be. And we intentionally recruited people looking for. Uh, you know, support of that culture and mindset. And um, by bringing in those good people and engaging them and all of the staff from the front desk to the schedulers to the doctors, they all felt that they were part of the team. And even though there were incredible inefficiencies in our system, because of all the differences in the way that, you know, one OB group wanted to report a particular way, a different one wanted it another way, we all bore that knowing that it was the right thing to do for those patients and for those providers. And it didn't seem to be much of a hassle to us because we recognized that was kind of the service we were there to provide.
0: Mark, does the same hold true for leadership? Because one of the things that you've done spectacularly is keep this culture going through four decades and three leaders. And you know, often when we speak to people, they say, well, you know, this is, this is the leader's problem. I just don't have a great leader or I, you know, that's the issue. How, how, how do you either select the right leaders or how have you been able to keep this philosophy going through those leaders? Well, I
3: mean, I'm not sure how Joe got chosen to be the leader. Um, he was a, a great choice. Um, and I am certain that over the years that I worked at Tristan before I became, uh, a leader. Joe must have identified something in me that he thought was you know going to be the right fit. Believe it or not I already know who the next leader is going to be for our group. I mean uh, and whether that person wants to admit it or not they also recognize that they are you know likely to be the next leader. There are traits in people that uh, foster doing the right thing for the patient, but also trying to do the right thing for your staff. And and that's really the balance that you have to to try and manage. Um, Joe did a fantastic job of doing that and at the same time growing the practice and having the business sense that that it took for private practice. Um, And and we've, over time, transitioned now to being more of an employed model. Uh, And uh, it, it has different challenges, but again, it's the the same particular mindset as you serve the patients, the referrers, and it, it has to
1: come from the top down. So how, how far ahead do you identify the new leaders?
2: I, I think it takes working side by side uh, in the trenches um, uh, for several years uh, to see see people's reaction to, um, uh, to the stressors, see people's... Um, ability to compromise and accommodate and uh, work as a team member. Uh, I think uh, it it takes several years to, to find that, to see people at their worst and their best.
1: It sounds like what you're looking at is both their aptitude and their interest in taking that leadership role.
2: True. Yeah, I mean, interest obviously is one. So I think that's probably the, the hardest thing uh, to get to. Is uh, you might have the right person, but they have virtually no interest in uh, in taking on this burden. And in our practice, you know, we were in the business of medicine. You know, we we owned every MRI machine, every building, every pencil eraser, uh, and had to pay for it. So it was a That was an enormous, when we were in private practice, that was an enormous uh, challenge. And uh, they may be the right person from a leadership standpoint on the medical side, but were they the right person on the business side? And uh, now maybe that has, um, you know, changed a little bit, but... um, but I think there are some, there are some common denominators in good leaders and, uh, in the, in the healthcare industry, uh, uh, people by definition go into healthcare, not by default, but by choice. And they, uh, uh they, they actually care for people. And I think, uh, as a good leader in healthcare, you have to trust that and reward that and nurture that and appreciate it. Don't take it for granted. And, uh, uh, fight the overwhelming nature of, of medicine uh that that your technologists feel you know much the same on the business side it can be overwhelming for a ceo or a coo or or our uh, cfo uh in the healthcare industry where you're trying to make a profit where there can be very little sometime um and so i think um, you know as a leader you have to be one that uh is a good person, is a good professional, but also projects confidence, um, uh, is sometimes very paternal and, uh, and is, has the ability to keep it manageable for people who are feel like they're swimming in a big ocean of overwhelming health care.
0: Joe, one of the things you, you mentioned is, is the idea of the business side of it, and I think this maybe comes across more in a practice like a radiology practice than in some other aspects of medicine, but everything that we do ultimately in the U.S. system has a business aspect, whether it's at the small practice level or at the corporate hospital level. And the question that I've asked a bunch of people, and I'm really curious in your answer to, is how do you reconcile the business imperatives and the corporate nature of some aspects of medicine with the caring for physicians and caring for patients? Um... What are the ways that you reconcile those two sometimes competing uh, needs? Yeah.
2: Mark, do you have an idea? I have a couple ideas.
3: Uh, A a couple. Um, I think it really comes down to to balancing uh, personal uh, physician-driven choices with uh, working for the greater good. Um, I think it is always making sure that you focus on the patient. Um, Obviously, that is your primary goal. Yes, there may be some uh, business constraints that uh, have a negative or potential negative impact on the physicians, uh, but they still are the right choice for the patients. It is recognizing that and acknowledging that to the group, Uh, as a leader so that it is understood why the decision is made in a particular way and uh, promoting that culture of not just worrying about what is in my best interest personally as a physician, but in what is in the best interest of the group and in supporting the group culture. And frankly, it's when we pick that, when we go through that exercise and the practice repeatedly, that's when you identify who the next leader is because you you pick out who that next person may be based on their responses. If, if their response is, I don't want to do that, you know they're probably not going to be a good leader as opposed to the person who says, personally, I don't like that, but I recognize that that is what we should do that's the person you want to be your next leader uh, because they're fostering that that same culture where they're balancing those two sometimes opposing forces that you mentioned, which is uh, the business of medicine and radiology versus uh, the service piece. Um, and sometimes they're opposites. So you have to manage those carefully.
2: It's incredibly, as Simon alluded to, and uh, Mark just said that, you know, sometimes they're diametrically opposed. Good Top quality service um, can be essentially a money loser if that's if the only thing you're thinking of is top quality service. So, um, you know, we uh, we mentioned or alluded to previously uh, of having some economies of scale and having um, people do what they're trained to do. Um, uh, I, I found, number one, that I had to have some good administrators, even though. I felt like I had a, a fair handle on the business side of things, and so did Mark. Um, uh, we had very good administrators doing what they do best, uh, but they and all they thought about was the, the bottom line. Um, but they had to defer to the to the physician when sometimes that bottom line had to shrink, or or some aspect. Uh, as an example, uh, mammography was. Um, very often uh, in, in radiology practices, a money loser. It ended up being a, and a loss leader, and some insurers uh, would only reimburse us uh, pennies, and it was a loss leader with that particular insurer. But the way we did it um, embellished uh, not only the service but the profitability of it and giving immediate feedback and therefore more people wanted to come, uh, doing same-day ultrasounds, doing sometimes same-day biopsies. Uh, that expedited health care that provided a better service for the patient and the clinician um, in one-stop shopping, and it, all of a sudden, what was a loss leader ended up being profitable. Uh, one thing I have to say is that um, uh, in... The practice philosophy that was always spoken of and was pervasive in our practice, um, that being top quality service to the patient and clinician, uh, our staff never, uh, never heard about the business side of it. They never had to think about it. They were never told of it um that was mark's job and my job and and paul deloya and our other three administrators uh, job uh they just needed to focus on giving a patient a good experience and wanting to come back giving that um that gal who's in for her mammogram all the incentive to send her husband in when uh um when he needed a mr of his back um because and and we had to understand the business side of things that uh, the women in the household make eighty percent of the healthcare decisions in um, in their families. Um, most men, you know, don't think about it until they have something that needs attention. And uh, but the the women in the household are that's part of their uh, their wheelhouse. And so we appealed to that. We made that a part of our part of our business plan. Um, you know, was it abusive? I don't know. But nonetheless, <laughs> but, you have to find ways to, uh, to harness that uh, that energy and providing good care to the women was uh, was one of them.
1: Well, but it also I mean, it also sounds like what was very important and what we've heard from other folks is that um, protecting your staff from the business challenges And just allowing them to do their job that they were trained to do without having to cross train or do lots of other tasks that may not be in their wheelhouse was really Mm -hmm. how you got efficient, how you provided excellent care and how you endeared yourself to the patients because it was excellent care.
2: Mark don't you agree we we tried to keep it manageable like uh, you picture yourself uh, ultrasound technologist and you know they're largely working on in a high volume practice and doing sometimes uh, 18 to 25 patients a day and uh, uh they can feel like they're swimming in a, this enormous sea of healthcare and it, it's even worth I'm sure working for a UPMC or a Penn State Health uh, where you feel like you're just a small little fish but if but if your leaders keep it manageable say okay you just you're you're just doing what you can do in this time slot the best that you can do it and don't worry about the business don't worry about uh, all of healthcare just Take good care of that patient in that twenty minutes. Um, you know, then the rest of it will follow. The profitability will follow. Uh, the patient leaves happy and comes back. Um, and I, I think also boils down to some small creature comforts, like understanding the staff, remembering their name, uh, remembering their husband's name. There was a time, you know, we had, a, uh, you know, we had up to four hundred employees at one time but um you know it got a little hard but there was a time when paul and i knew everybody's husband's um, wife's name their dog's name we knew their kids um we tried to take care of them as individuals, and also provide some creature comforts. They need to have a place where they can get out of the workspace um, and and have some privacy—a a locker, a lunch room. you take away the coffee, you've got some big problems. Uh, if they don't have a, a bath, a clean bathroom handy, just some real basic things that people need on every day to do their jobs, uh, uh, to us was a priority. Um, and making them happy and therefore making the patient happy.
1: Yeah. So, Mark, I know that you all have transitioned lately. The the business structure of healthcare has changed over the last few years. Reimbursement patterns have changed. And so you have transitioned, as you said earlier, to a more employed model. And I wonder um, how that transition has been for the practice. And are you doing anything different now than you did as a private practice, or have you been able to adapt a lot of those same strategies to how you practice now?
3: Um, yes and no. Um, we have. It's actually gone better than we had expected. Um, obviously, when you are in private practice and you control every aspect of your day-to-day work, um, you have total autonomy and, and total impact on most decisions, if not all. Um going to an employed model, you fear uh, loss of that autonomy. Um, w- we were able to get uh, our employer to understand and recognize that we do know what we're doing and to basically um, be hands off. And they've empowered us to do what we know best and have given us um, not quite carte blanche, but pretty nearly carte blanche. Um, As long as we get the work done that they want us to get done, uh, we control our time off. We control how we get the work done. We control how we staff. We control the hours of staffing. Um, A lot of those things actually go a long ways towards uh, keeping the physicians engaged and not making them feel like they're just uh, a number. I really think it comes down to empowering people to do the right thing um, regardless of the structure that they're in. Um, it goes back to, you know, when we were Tristan, we empowered the techs to, to, to do the right thing on the spot to fix problems, be problem solvers by doing that. It made them part of the team. They were a key integral part of it. They were much more engaged and much happier to do that. um, because they recognized that they had a positive impact on other people's lives by doing that. Um, we're trying to replicate that on a much larger scale across a much larger larger organization right now. We're just a small cog in a, a 13,000 employee health system now, um, but we are the single most uh, single fastest uh, rapidly growing part of that practice right now. Um, 18. Well, actually, it's more than that. It's uh, 22 months ago we joined, and we had 12 radiologists. Uh, as of today, we got 23. I've got uh, four more under contract, and I've got six more that I'm uh, waiting to sign in the next few months. And I'm actively recruiting for at least another ten. And it goes back to what Joe and I mentioned earlier, which is we aren't really looking for skill sets. We're looking for personality types and um, good people that we know will be engaged in that practice model that we're looking to to promote out in the community. Uh, side of things so it, it it's a, a significantly different beast uh, as an employed entity um but all in all it's it's not been bad for us
1: yeah and it, it sounds like you're still like you're still um basing your decisions on a few of the basic principles take good care of your patients be a good um be a good practice citizen a a good practice member um you know kind of that that servant leadership and then let people do their jobs and give them the autonomy to do that job well
2: correct and also uh, as a good leader you're you're unburdening your staff whether it's physician or technologist you're taking the burden of, of the healthcare institution, the responsibility of profitability, the other aspects of medicine, you're unburdening them and letting them do what they do. And when you're relaxed and happy, you're going to be doing a better job and that patient's going to be well taken care of.
1: Yeah. That is such a great point. Yeah. I
3: take it all. I'm the buffer for the group right now.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a, and that's, that's a lot of burden. I mean, that's a big burden to shoulder. So uh, is, uh, we're just about at the end of our time, but I'm wondering if there's anything, anything either of you would like to share that we haven't asked about at this point.
2: I'm curious to know from your standpoint um, where this fits into the. Um, if you've seen heard any in our, this conversation, heard any common denominators uh, um, that. That help in the moral injury um, perspective. I think um, uh, there's no doubt that moral injury occurs because people, to me, in my mind, uh, they're injured at uh, almost a soul level because the uh, innate in them is this um, need to care, uh, to be passionate about uh, what they're doing, and. Um, When they're frustrated in that, um, then they're injured and uh, uh, at a very soulful level. And that's what we're trying to appeal to. Did anything we say help that?
0: There's three big themes that have come up several times, Joe, and you guys have both, uh, between the two of you, um, repeated things that we've heard a handful of times. And I think the three that come up that I was just writing down as you were speaking were Number one, teamwork, making sure that your your team's there and every member of the team is not only working at an appropriate level for them, but that they feel like they're part of a team and that they're doing a job that's meaningful and worthwhile and productive. I think secondly, letting your clinicians be clinicians. You know, you're burdening the business side of it so that they can do the primary job, which is taking really good care of patients, and that they don't feel conflicted in taking care of patients. And in, in your group that transcended just the day-to-day physicians, and went all the way through to your technicians. And I think that's powerful. And then the third thing is spectacular communication where you're bringing back to your doctors what you are doing and why it's important. And as Mark said, making sure that you hire people who are communicating the right way and have the right mindset. Uh, and those are three themes that come up over and over and over again. And so it's, it's really powerful to hear you say them again.
1: And I'm, I'm so glad to hear that um, you've been able to translate that into an employed model because I think that's important. And there are some really great lessons learned there.
2: Yeah, yeah. I want to throw one more thing out there um, because I, uh, although I wasn't in a leadership role in an employed model, I think there are some things that uh, are are common denominators and uh, and important because even though they may not have to worry about the business side as much, they. There, there are other burdens. There are maybe some academic burdens. Uh, there may be some uh, burdens with respect to being part of thirteen thousand rather than four hundred, and uh, um, that's uh, um, you know, so that that's something that I think uh, uh, with Mark as a leader and some of the others as a leader um, requires um, understanding um From the leader and um not as not only unburdening but maybe being a little paternal um in in your leadership that uh um that you're sort of projecting confidence you're projecting that uh um you're giving them a good feedback staying positive you're doing a good job um not just lip service but uh but uh, sincerity and um uh, and that uh, sort of paternal uh, feeling is almost like a hug for your soul, you know, that uh, uh, in this COVID year, everybody's talking about the fact that you, you know, you can't, there's nothing tactile, there's no hugs, you can't even see somebody smile anymore. Uh, and uh, human beings need that. And uh, you need that for your soul and to motivate that passion and that uh, sense of caring that sent you into that field. So yeah. I think right now, uh, especially in a big institution, uh, uh, a little bit of a warm fuzzy paternal feeling—not uh, you know—not anything maudlin—but uh, certainly uh, uh, that goes a long way to giving people uh, a renewed sense that uh, that they're they're doing a good job and they and they went into the right field for the right reasons. I don't know. I'm just, I I was thinking about the moral injury aspect of it. And it seems like, uh, uh, you know, uh, people right now, especially, but uh, in a bigger institution, need kind of a a hug for their soul uh, a little bit.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate both of you um, taking the time this morning to come on and talk with us. Thank
0: you both. Hey,
2: I'm happy to do it absolutely thank you and uh hopefully this helped a little bit um, and i want to say we appreciate what you're doing uh, i've read uh, some of your uh, pieces and uh, i i think it's good work and uh, it's going to help in the long run as things do probably get more consolidated and uh, um you know especially now in this covid era um uh, which may change us forever a little bit, but uh, I think uh, you're doing good work, and for sure we appreciate that.
1: Yeah. Thank you.:
3: Thanks, Joe.: Yeah, thanks for doing what you guys do.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Uh,
0: well, this was a really fun conversation, and I think one of the things to me that's really valuable about this uh, discussion was hearing the other side of the story, hearing. Um, what goes on for people who are leading, hearing what's going on for those people who are trying to manage all of the different complexities of the healthcare environment. And one of the things that comes up and came up and and that uh, Wendy and I talk about a lot is the importance of the culture when it comes to this. So Wendy, can you expand a little bit on that?
1: What I was fascinated with were a couple of things. One is that both of these leaders made it clear that they chose their people to match the culture. And it was everyone from the secretaries who are at the front desk, all the way to their clinicians, their physicians. Um, everyone had to have a, a service-minded approach to the culture. But they also were, they were service-minded in modeling it in protecting their clinicians from the worst challenges of healthcare, so they weren't just pushing down expectations or, um, or legislation or or any of those policy requirements. They were trying to buffer their clinicians to allow them to do what they were trained to do without obstacles.
0: That's absolutely a, a critical point, point. Um, and part of that is the real, authentic, and genuine care for their clinicians as people, understanding what they're going through because they've been through it, but really caring about them um, as people, as well as uh, clinicians getting the job done.
1: Yeah, so we need more of that.
0: (laughs) All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today. We have a a couple of announcements. The first is we want to thank everybody um, who has been listening to us uh, as we've now reached 2,000 downloads. So that's a milestone that we're both proud of and very grateful for your help achieving.
1: If you want to continue the conversation, you can find us on Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare,
0: Instagram at Moral Injury,
1: on Twitter at WDeanMD Simon Talbot MD,
0: and uh, some more news. We now have an additional Twitter handle at Fix Moral Injury.
1: And if you're listening to the podcast, thanks for doing that. Share it with your friends. Download, subscribe, rate it, review it. It helps other people find us. So join us next time when we have a special episode where we're going to take your questions, ask us anything for episode 10. Until then, stay well.